Well, we come today to Matthew chapter 11, as you know, working our way through the gospel of Matthew, this ministry year, starting in September, concluding end of June, really. And I've been telling you for a couple of weeks, we're coming to this section that I, I have just sensed such a, a resonance with over the last number of weeks as I have pulled some of my thoughts together. Uh, disappointment. It shows up in the text. It really does. From somebody you wouldn't expect it. Uh, from necessarily. That is John the Baptist. I don't think we're going to be too hard on him today. I don't think so. I think we'll see it together in the text. But there's a, there's a connection to the questions that he asks to some of the questions we ask. And um, I, I have done a little bit of study in preparation on that particular topic in addition to the text. And uh, one of the books I pulled off my shelf is, is an older book now. It's like 20 years old. Goodness sakes, man. Old book. Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God, some of you might be familiar with. Uh, it's a book built around three questions that people of faith often ask or are asked by others. Those three questions would be, is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? And he builds his book around addressing those three very common questions. Another book I pulled off my shelf, I'd read a couple years ago. It's in my section on suffering. Um, this is from Ligon Duncan, good Presbyterian pastor down south. Uh, called does, It's a question. Does grace grow best in winter? He's not talking about saving grace, that where Christ brings us to himself first of all. But what we would call God's sanctifying grace, that is his grace of helping us become more like Jesus. And his question then, does that grow best in times of winter? And I think you'd see if you read this book, his his answer is yet typically yes. During seasons of winter, we do tend to be a little more in tune with God. And then a book I picked up as well just for this week from a, a professor at Moody Bible Institute, Chicago campus. Uh, The Surprising Grace of Disappointment. I've listed all these on your study sheet if you're interested in uh, things to read. The Surprising Grace of Disappointment. And this morning as we look at the text, as we think about John the Baptist, I'd like you as well to be interacting with God on your expectations of him. That makes sense? We all come with expectations of God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, are we expecting from him? Things indeed that he's promised. Or are we expecting from him things he's never promised? Well, these are things for us to think about. And uh, I'm going to read a few things from this book as we go along here today. But I want to pray for us that God would help us as we come to his word today. But join me, please, as we pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word together. Thank you for how, as we study, we see not only things that happened a long time ago and the value of those indeed, but you also draw us in the text to look at our own lives and our own hearts and families and to evaluate them before you as well. And I pray that you would help us to do that today as we think about this this expectation issue. What do we expect from you? Father, challenge our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So your study notes, of course, as always, have a few elements of review. If you've been with us, you uh, have tracked the first 11 or 10 chapters, so to speak, of, of Matthew. We have a ways to go, but those elements of review are intended to bring us all up to speed. The section called today's text, as you look at that, is largely the italicized part portion, a, a quote from theologian D.A. Carson, 
where he notes that in Matthew 11, again, some of you like to think this way, Matthew 11, 12, 13, this section, all right, uh, introduce a growing um, frustration, so to speak, growing questions, uh, growing disappointment, Carson would say, by some people looking at Jesus in his ministry. What's going on here? Wait a minute. We thought you were going to come and fix the world. And so far, it still looks pretty broken to me. So where's the fixing the world that you were going to do? Or the judging of the world. Some were expecting that. Where's all that? I thought you were going to smack all the bad guys. And there's still a few around. So what's going on around here, Jesus? And and when are you going to get around to those things that I, I, I care about? Well, D.A. Carson's paragraph, I think, is a helpful thing to us. My comments, and if you look at the study sheet, just to kind of get your bearings about where we're going, I always think that way. Um, verses 1 through 19, in that first heading, what are you expecting from God? Then we'll look at Jesus addressing some cities in the area of repentance. And then we will look at that latter section and hear God's call to them and to us to come, to come to him. So that's going to be our, our plan today. I want to read this first section. As always, we like to read the word of God and draw our comments from the text. So Matthew chapter 11, I want to read verse 1 down through verse 19. Chapter 11, verse 1 really belongs, I think, with the chapter before, but we'll pick it up anyway. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I think that's really the focal point of this conversation. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by storm. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And I'm going to stop right there. The issue of expectation shows up in the text in several different ways. 
Uh, first of all, John, of course, it's, I called it out in verse 3, his question of Jesus, uh, wondering. There's an expectation there. Jesus addresses an expectation about John. What were you expecting from him? I mean, did you think he was going to be this nice little guy with uh, three points in a poem? And I mean, what were you expecting from John the Baptist, this fiery Old Testament style prophet? What were you expecting? And then, of course, people looking at John and Jesus in that latter portion, verses 16 to 19, expectations there as well. And Jesus saying, boy, you guys are pretty picky, basically. You, you want somebody who's this way. You want somebody who's this way. Really, you don't want either spokesman for God. Well, I want to start with John the Baptist. And uh, I just want to think with you about the, the journey we take with him. We've met John the Baptist back in Matthew chapter 3, didn't we? When Jesus came to him to be baptized. And of course, the Gospels uh, together present different moments in the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. You remember with me the, the, the account in John chapter 1, when Jesus came to be baptized. John includes a couple of things that the other Gospels don't. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 29, that place where John saw Jesus coming. Remember this? And he hollers out. Behold, look, that's the point of that. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John had an expectation that this indeed was he. Behold, the Lamb of God, here he comes. And then, of course, the Gospels also record that interaction as Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And John says, whoa, you're the Lamb of God. You should baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, do it anyway uh, to fulfill all righteousness. So they've had interaction well, back in, John, in Matthew 4, verse 12, there's a little passing comment. You can read right over it and not even notice. But it said, when, when Jesus heard that John was in prison, oh, stop, that might not be important in the development of the story of Jesus, but I think that was a really big deal to John, right? Because, I mean, he's going to prison. So that's chapter 4, verse 12. Now we're in chapter 11. Where's John? Still in prison. Uh, assuming some studies of chronologies and so on, it's been a while, like months and months, maybe even a year from chapter 4, verse 12 till here. There's been a lot of things happen. John's over there in prison. Now, if you look ahead, and we'll be there in a few weeks, you go to Matthew chapter 14, you know the rest of the story, don't you? Uh, John does sort of get out of prison. Right? But he has his head cut off to do it. Now, why, why talk about all of that? John the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Baptist. Well, here's the deal. If, and again, you remember their cousins. If you're sitting in prison and the one that you announced, like, here he is, it's the Lamb of God. Everybody follow him now, as we read in the Gospel of John. Follow him now. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. John gets thrown in the slammer and Jesus is out doing amazing things, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching wonderful sermons. Crowds are flocking to him. What's John doing? Nothing, as a matter of fact. He's sitting in prison, and I, I suspect he's wondering about some things. Maybe things like, hey, hey, cousin Jesus, over here. <laughs> A little love, a little love for John the Baptist, your forerunner. Um, How about a get out of jail free card? I mean, come on. If you can do all of that, I mean, I'm just going to sit here and 
In chapter 14, they're going to, I mean, he didn't know it, of course, fortunately. They're going to cut my head off. Well, this is great. You ever been jealous of God's dealings with other people? So-and-so is sick. I'm sick. God heals them. Me, not so much. So-and-so, look at their family. Uh Uh-huh. Look at mine. Look at their kids. Look at mine. Look at my husband. Look at my wife. (laughs) They're wonderful is what I meant. But don't don't we often, uh, maybe you don't, but I suspect you do in some areas, wonder about why God deals in this way with one person and not with another. And I wonder, I suspect that that's part of what's going on with John. Uh, Are you the one who's to come? Shall we look for another? I think there's more to this. And I'm I'm, I'm giving you several things here on your study sheet, some other references. Uh, Back in in Matthew chapter 3, when uh, that moment of baptism, you remember that John is announcing Jesus and he says some things about him. We could go back and look. I just gave you the reference. But he, he announces Jesus as this, this coming preacher. And oh, oh, this is so important. Um, John, based on the Old Testament, combines. Oh, please get this. This is a big deal in understanding the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament pulls together Jesus' first and second comings. It, it often does not divide them. If you read things in the Old Testament, it looks like they're together. So, for example, Jesus' first coming, as we now know because of the way the Bible plays out, Jesus' first coming is a coming of redemption and mercy. Fiery judgment is coming later. But in the Old Testament, it looks like they're together. So, for example, I, give you, I mentioned Malachi 3. It's there. That's one of those texts. Isaiah 61 is another one. Isaiah 61 is the text, you recall, from the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went to the, the synagogue in Nazareth. They handed him a scroll to read. It's very telling. You, you could read right over the text and not even notice. But Jesus un, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61, which is where it is for us, and he begins to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach and do all these wonderful things. And he, he stops in what for us is the middle of a verse. He stops because it goes from caring for people and healing the sick. And it stops right before he gets to, and the day of vengeance of our God, Jesus stops, rolls up the scroll, hands it back and says, today, the scripture was fulfilled in your hearing. He stops right before the day of vengeance of our God. That's later. That's later. That's later. So understanding that, we can forgive John for not seeing it. He's read the Old Testament. He's going, Messiah's going to come. The kingdom's going to come. There's going to be all the bad guys are going to get in trouble. And then it's going to come this wonderful time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and a child will play by the hole of a cobra. Kingdom time. Wonderful. Here he is. Look, it's, it's time. And then Jesus comes. And what's he do with, and I give you the reference, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. What's he doing in chapter 9, verse 10? We saw it a week ago. He's having dinner. He's having dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. John wants him to kind of, you know, preach at him, like rebuke him, yell at him. It's the tax collectors and sinners. I mean, come on, Jesus. Here they are. Get them. Jesus has a pizza. And he's going, wait, 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 what's this mercy business? He didn't get it at all. So he asked the obvious question. Are you the one or did we get it wrong? Are you the one or should we look for another? I don't blame John for being confused. I don't blame John, but I'm saying this. 
He had some expectations of Jesus coming that were not being played out just like us. Sometimes we have expectations of Jesus, things he never promised. And we keep thinking, I think, God, when's that going to happen? After all, you're supposed to fix things, aren't you? You're supposed to fix things. I mean, what's God for if not to fix my life? Well, I want to leave that intention for just a couple of minutes. If you look at your study sheet, just to fill in a few things, John's the last of the Old Testament prophets, certainly the prophesied forerunner of Messiah. Uh, The second little bullet point, is it too much to expect the one who heals the sick and raises the dead, get a friend out of prison, at least keep him from getting his head cut off? Well, I was reflecting on this head cut off as a fill-in. I don't think I've ever had that in all my years of giving you little fill-ins. Head cut off is never the answer to one of the fill-ins. So you can mark this day as a banner day. John, of course, that third little bullet point, he's confused about when, when, when is the fill-in, when those kingdom prophecies will be, be fulfilled. He, he doesn't get it. When is this supposed to happen? I want to refer for a couple of moments to this book, The Surprising Grace of Disappointment. I just want you to just mull this over with me, John's situation and how it coincides with our own. Um, A couple of little uh, helpful notes in this book. Some chapters I resonated with more than others. Uh, You understand when I reference a book, it is not necessarily an unqualified endorsement of the whole thing. But the foreword uh, of this little book written by John Ortberg, another pastor, has this encouraging statement. Every child enters the world crying. You can tell where the book is going to go from there. Uh, Yes, disappointment seems to be non-optional equipment. And on he goes. He says, this is now switching to, uh, uh, to Kessler from the introduction. He says this, we live in a day of unreasonable expectation. Ours is a world where promises are cheaply made, easily broken, and where hyperbole is the lingua franca. Advertisers, advertisers tell us a different shampoo will make us more attractive to the opposite sex. Alcohol will help our relationships. Purchasing the right car will be a gateway to adventure. These pitchmen promise to do more than just enhance our lives. They are peddling ultimate fulfillment. A little later in the book, he says something like this. I paraphrase. And churches sometimes do exactly the same thing. Sometimes even in inviting people to Christ. Uh, You hear it on the radio sometimes. I've heard invitations on the radio, frankly. I hope I don't do them like that, that. That make me cringe. Things like this. Uh, are your finances a mess? Is your marriage in trouble? Are your kids, let's face it, pretty rotten? Then you need to come to Jesus. And what's the implication? That if you come, you won't go bankrupt. Your marriage will be fine. And those rotten kids of yours, well, they'll, they'll all turn around. <laughs> and he correctly points out that sometimes people get disappointed because they weren't offered a certain bill of goods rather than a, an invitation that says, come to Christ, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled with the holy God. How about that? We offer all kinds of other fringe benefits that God never promised. And we try to package that and sell that and then say, well, wonderful. Interestingly, there's a... Uh, there's a little section later on. I, I, I also resonated with, oh dear. He talks about the church as a marketed community. Again, expectations. And he's describing 
Um, he says, what I'm certain is that this pressure to be a marketed community, it must be presented with a bright and cheery face. In other words, isn't it wonderful? It's wonderful. Go ahead. Say it. it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. Is it, is it always wonderful? Well, no. But he says, try to sell. Basically, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Try to sell a gloomy church. How about that? Put some pictures on of people leaving who were, you know, dour and just kind of like, come to our church. You know, that's not going to sell. Right. And of course, he, he, he's, you know, a little snarky about it, I suppose. But his, his point is well taken. Sometimes life hurts and you come to worship and at different times and places, you can sometimes feel a pressure to, to be chipper and you're just not having it. I remember a friend of mine, again, some years ago, who told me he hadn't been to church in a long time. He went to a different church in town. This down in Vancouver. And, of course, I was saying, hey, well, you know, maybe you ought to go back. And he said, yeah, here's the deal. You know, I'm, I go to such and such a church, love it, love the people. But it really builds itself on, and it's great all the time. And he said, right now it isn't. I just can't go there because it isn't great all the time. And if I walk in looking and feeling like I do, somebody's going to want to know what's wrong with me. And I don't want to tell them. So I'm just not going to go to church. Uh, wow, what a reminder that in a church gathering of any sort, there are people who are, couldn't get any better than this. This is as good as you come. And others who are barely making it. And we don't want to leverage one way or another. If you're barely making it, man, we're glad you're here. You don't have to throw on a big sappy smile just to be here. You don't. You really don't. You just be who you are. Because sometimes it doesn't work, right? All of this under the, under the category of expectations. So, again, Kessler, thank you. Thank you for those reminders. Well, well, you look at the text again with me. John wants to know a good question. Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Should I keep on looking? Should my hunt continue? John, uh, Jesus, of course, answers by saying, go tell John all that's going on. And this should trigger his Old Testament awareness, his prophetic understanding. No, it, it, it's me. Don't be offended. And then, of course, the expectations about John. I mean, he's basically, verse 7, Jesus is pointing out, John's very different from me. Do you see it? John's an Old Testament, last of the Old Testament prophets, as I put on your study sheet. John's, John's I mean, he's dressed in rough clothing and eating weird food, and Jesus isn't. You know, what were you expecting from John? That's who John was. He was, a, he was an Old Testament-style prophet. And then there's Jesus who comes. Now, I, I note on your study sheet, again, I, I try to incorporate a number of things in my comments because I know that all of us come to the text with different uh, loves when it comes to study. Some of you love certain types of theological wrestling. Others of you want to uh, really not so much. But I, I mentioned here on your study sheet uh, a comment from theologian Michael Vlock, whose book I have referenced before, Work on the Kingdom. Uh, Vlock notices in, in this particular paragraph kind of a pivotal thing. Again, some of you like to, see, to think about such things. Specifically, verse 14, he deals with the Greek tense of the word if. Uh, understandable, sometimes the word if is translated, it means since. Sometimes it means if and who knows. And he uh, deals with some of that. His point, though, is this. Vlock believes, as do a number of other theologians, that, that when Jesus was coming... He was offering a kingdom that could indeed have come if the people had welcomed him. In other words, and not all theologians would agree with that. Vlock would be one who would. That, that Jesus was giving a legitimate offer of the kingdom. That had there been uh, open hearts and receptiveness by the Jewish crowd, that indeed we would have gone straight from the cross right into to kingdom. 
interesting things to think about, but he points there to verse 14. Again, some of you wrestle with these things and like to think and, and wonder, but verse 14, if you're willing, and you may or may not be, it seems to be up in, in the air at this point. And then Vlock also notes, and I have these little notes on your study sheet as well, if you want to study those as well. The grief of Christ expressed later when that, when that, that offer is fully and finally rejected. And that's represented in Matthew 23, 37 to 40. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you. The mother hen gathers her chicks and you would not. And then likewise, uh, Luke 19, at that moment of triumphal entry, when Jesus sees the crowds and he knows that in in very short order, he's going to hear the cry crucified. But they're saying Hosanna. And again, he weeps. Uh, Luke 19 presents a weeping Jesus coming into Jerusalem saying, if only you knew, if only you knew what day it was, if only you read the prophets, if only you believed the Bible, here I am riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, as Zechariah tells us, and you don't even notice. So I I think Vlock is on to something there, the the disappointment of Christ, that he's doing all these things in fulfillment of Old Testament prophets, and, and so many times people still said, well, what more can you do for me? They were expecting, I think, a political savior Now, I look at that final bullet point under this with you, and just before we move to the next section, um, today we still live in a broken world. Have you noticed? And it is very easy for us still to expect things from God that properly belong to another day, the day, the great day, that final day. When Christ returns and all is made well. And I reference here for you just a whole number of things. Romans 8, that wonderful paragraph, we come to it often, where you, where you see Paul describing this broken world as groaning. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed to us. But in other words, to back that verse up, there are sufferings in this present world. The glories to be revealed are later. Then he says, this whole creation groans and suffers just like the pains of childbirth together until now, waiting for that final day of redemption. That's the idea in Romans chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, should be a great comfort to you if you are in a difficult spot today. That's where the Apostle Paul is talking to this church. He's writing a letter to them, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, how close we were to not making it. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. But he's very clear. We were so stressed in such difficulty. We just weren't sure we were going to make it. And some of you know what that's like, where you're dealing with this or this or this or this. And you're saying, I, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. I get it. I understand. And I think the apostle Paul did too. And he references that feeling in first, second Corinthians one. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. And then again, 1 Peter, I referenced this, I think, in our study sheet last week, 1 Peter 2, uh, 4, 12 and 13, where Peter says, don't be surprised, brothers, at the fiery ordeal among you. It's here to test you. Don't be surprised. What did you think was going to happen in this world? Right? Everything was going to be roses. You're going to come to Christ. Every, no, nobody's going to get sick again. There's going to be no more cancer. Nobody you love's going to die. What did you think? No, we're in a broken world, and this isn't the kingdom. This isn't the kingdom. Okay, no, Christ came as a harbinger, a a messenger of of what is to be, but this isn't it yet. 
No, this is a broken world. And in this world, indeed, Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, you will have tribulation. You will, you will, you will. Well, we need those reminders. And I'll be, again, we're not done thinking about this, but we need these reminders lest our expectations of God lead to disappointment of him, in him. More on this in a minute. I want to go to verses 20 to 24. In a sense, you might see here God's disappointment. Kind of interesting. I want to read 20 to 24. Then Jesus, it is, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament cities that got wiped out, you can read there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, how about that? Worst city of all time. You can read, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Now that's scorching it just a little bit. John the Baptist would have been proud if he'd been listening to that. Uh, this, is, this paragraph is several things. It is a rebuke. It's a rebuke of those who are listening in Jesus' day. Please get a hold of this who saw Jesus do amazing things and still said, show me more. I want to see more. I wanted a political savior, and all you're doing is like these little piddly things like healing the sick and raising the dead. I expected more out of you than that. There's a rebuke. There's a rebuke. Goodness sakes, what does it take for you to believe? Or as I have here on your study sheet, what does it take for you to repent? I mean that for you, not just them. What does it take for you to come to a place of repentance? Well, God sent a preacher. That's the next little bullet point. I'm getting him a little out of order. God sent a preacher of righteousness to Nineveh. That was Jonah. But there's an accountability. Oh, dear friends, please notice this in this paragraph. There's an accountability for what you know. There's an accountability, having heard the call of God, to respond. Tyre and Sidon had a warning, didn't respond. Guess what came next? A very unpopular thing today to preach about, that is judgment. Judgment. Will there be a coming day of judgment? The Bible says yes. As a matter of fact, there will be a coming day of judgment. That doesn't sell many books. doesn't fill too many churches. But the Bible is really clear on that. There's coming a day of judgment. Jesus is very clear about that, even in verse 24. There's a day of judgment coming, a day of accountability. And there's, there's an assumption here having seen the mighty works of God, or as with Jonah and Nineveh, having heard, having heard the call of God to come to him. There is an accountability for your response. Do you say no later on? No, I need to hear more. No, I won't believe. Is that it? Well, guess what? There's an accountability before God for that. You can just picture yourself standing before him someday and him saying, you remember that day, Sunset Bible Church? You were sitting right there. And you went, huh, that's interesting, but not for me. How about that? Man, what was I thinking? Why didn't I right at that moment call out to God in repentance? What was wrong with me? How come I? Indeed, what would it take for you to repent? What would it take for you to trust Christ as your savior? What would it take for you to say, he's the king, I'm not. He's the boss, not me. What would it take? What are you waiting for? 
Sometimes we hear it said, maybe you've said, you know, if, if Jesus just like pulled the clouds apart and came down and did some cool stuff, you know, everybody would believe. What's the answer to that? Not true. Absolutely not true. No, because the reason we don't believe isn't because we need more proof. It's, listen, it's because we have hard hearts. And we want our own way. And I don't need anybody telling me what to do. Not even, not even God. I want to do what I want to do. You only go around once, got my own boundaries, got my own way of living. And I just don't believe that. Now, then, as now, Jesus says, you know, these cities, I've done amazing things in you. Heal the sick and raise the dead. How come there's not a whole bunch of people coming to Christ? How, where's the big line? And they're not there. They're saying, well, I don't know. That was kind of cool, but didn't get rid of the Roman armies. Wasn't what I expected. Yeah. Interesting. Expecting, demanding. I put on your study sheet here, people doubt or they expect more. I very much believe that. We often today, and I, I have in mind here some of Kessler's comments, and shame on churches for selling a, a false gospel. But sometimes we want a Christianity without a cross. A faith that allows us to keep all of our pet sins. A God who affirms us. Oh, yes, he loves us right where we are. Yes, he does. Doesn't he? Yes. He loves us right where you are, but he doesn't leave us there. And we want a God who loves us where we are and lets us stay there. And that is not the gospel in the Bible. Yes, he loves us right where we are. And then he says, come, get up, get out of the mess. Follow me. Say no to sin. Come on. Don't just sit there. Yes, I love you where you are. Of course I do. Come to me right the way you are and let me help you change. This is what you do as a parent. You do it all the time. You got little kids, you go out in the backyard and they're a, well, they've been out there playing. It's been raining. It's muddy. It's a mess. What do you say? I don't love you. No, you do. You say, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you take him straight to the bathtub and wash their little bottoms off. Yes, you do. I love you so much. Let me clean you up. And so God says to us, yes, I love you exactly the way you are. But I love you too much just to leave you there. Today, sometimes I think we, we pitch a Christianity, hopefully not us, that says God loves you the way you are and you can stay there. And I just don't think that's in the Bible. No, no. Well, verse 20 to 24, there's, a, there's an accountability here. Look at the mighty works, Jesus. Look at the mighty works. Uh, again, theological issues. Some of you like to wrestle with other bigger topics. Here's one for you. Others of you just kind of let this roll right by. But the contingent knowledge of God is in this paragraph. What I mean by that is Jesus says, had Tyre and Sidon seen what you'd see, here's how they would have responded. If Sodom saw the things you've seen or heard what you've heard, here's how they would have responded. In other words, Jesus knowing what would have been. That's an interesting theological sidebar when people say, yeah, but they didn't hear or whatever. God can easily say yes. And had they heard or seen, they still wouldn't have believed. I know that because I am God, I see contingencies. I know what would have been. You don't have a clue, but I know. Well, that has a lot of theological ramifications. I just like to point these things out because some of you like to think about these over coffee. 
Others of you, just let it go. Let it go. Fly right by. Verse 25. I want to go here. Here's, here's kind of the concluding part to this chapter. At that time, Jesus declared, I love this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone, what's it say? To whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wow, that's quite a statement. Some of you need to wrestle with that as well. And then right into verse 28, come, come to me. Look at this, come to me, all who labor. As you have a heavy load on your shoulders, you're heavy laden, you're worn out, you've carried more than you need, you should have for, for far too long. And he said, here's the promise, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the call. It's unmistakable. Come. Come. Come to me. What's ambiguous about that? Sometimes people say, I just don't understand the Bible. Let me ask you this. Did you understand that? Come. Come. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. This is a text that speaks equally, though differently, to those who know Christ already and those who do not. To those who do not know Christ, it's a call to trust him as, as your savior from sin. The one who died on the cross in your place, paid for all the junk that you've done and all the good stuff you should have done and you haven't even touched, right? He paid for all of that when he died on the cross, rose from the dead, lives today, coming again. The call of scripture for you to trust Christ as your savior and trust him alone. It's not 90% him and 10 because you're so nice. It's zero because you're so nice. 100% Jesus and his work. Okay? That's the call to those who've never trusted Christ. The call to those of you who know him. It's here as well. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. What's that rest look like? Often in the Bible, rest and trust go side by side. Sometimes they're interchangeable. To rest, what does it mean to rest in Christ? What is it? It means that you trust him fully with whatever that mess is that's loading you down and you can't fix it even if you tried. You hear me? That's what, that's what rest is. To, to rest in God is to trust him. Take my hands off God. It's yours. So there's a call to you as well. Trust, trust him. Come, all who are weary, heavy laden. Jesus uses that good farming analogy of a yoke, two animals there. He says, take my yoke. You've been carrying a big one, heavy one, pulling the, trying to pull this thing by yourself. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. He uses the word rest again in verse 29. Now, I want to, I want to say just a couple things and we're just about done. Um, on this business of trust, I want to reference a little story in Kessler's book. He tells a story here that I, I just resonated with, and it calls for trust. Some of you will resonate this. I've got two little stories. One is this uh, story of this couple, uh, Ron and Margaret, friends of Kessler's. 
who started off younger days, normal good hopes as a young couple. Margaret just wants a house. It doesn't have to be a big fancy house, but you know, a, a house and a yard and a little picket fence and some kids. And I'm not asking for a lot, but just, just that, my little part of the world. And you know what? I'll be happy. Ron was this um, entrepreneurial guy, business guy, wanted to start a company, did. Got started with his company, but here's the little deal. They lived in Detroit, and it was the 1980s and 1990s. And one thing led to another, and before long, Ron had lost everything he had, and they'd lost their little house. All the th- stuff that they'd started off on their earlier years hoping and dreaming for. And come on, isn't this good? We're loving Jesus. We want to do good in the world. We want to make enough money to give and, and, and help people. And, and, and latter years, their apartment managers don't own a thing. Disappointed? Well, on the one hand. But on the other hand, having learned some contentment. God didn't promise a house with the picket fence, did he? Was that part of what you signed up for? What he signed up for? Is that what it was? God promised you a house with a picket fence? Where was that? Successful business? Well, you know, no, he, he didn't promise that. But he promised to walk with you, to love you in the midst of it. At the end of the day, take you to heaven to be with him. I want to reference another little story because I'm after something here. And I, I'll condense a, a number of things here. But a, a friend of, of Kathy's and mine I mentioned her in other settings and other times, and maybe here, if, if it's repetitious, forgive me. But, but she's a young lady who at this point in her life is, is pretty beaten up. I mean, physically. Uh, she was in a, a terrible accident several years ago that left her physically damaged in a way where she'll never be okay here, ever. Traumatic brain injury, physically disabled, trach, um, mind that's damaged. Um, little girl died in the accident, too. A lot of hurt. A lot of hurt, a lot of hurt. She talks to us often, Facebook, texts, phone, and so on. Her mind has a hard time tracking with things. But I was talking to her a couple weeks ago, checked in right about Christmas time to say, how are you? And, and she got really pointed about her anger at God. Come on, what's the deal with this? I can't even walk straight. My mind doesn't work. My, and you can hear her breathing. You know, if you talk to somebody who has a trach, you know, you know, you get this. Struggling to breathe, especially when she's excited and upset. I'll never be okay again. I mean, why did God do this to me? I'm, I'm, this is it. Come on. Hmm. Wow. Well, it was the right moment, and yes, I, we, we talked about a number of things. It was the right moment to talk about some good theology, and I think she was hearing me. So I asked her about that, but, but, but wait, but wait, but wait. First of all, let me tell you, I don't know why God has allowed this. I don't know why God had a car full of doctors right behind the accident when it happened, who piled out. They were in town for a conference. Why were there four doctors in the car behind you who bailed out and did a field tracheotomy to save your little life? What are the chances of that? I mean, come on. Patched you up to where the ambulance, when they got there, you got four ER doctors working on you. Not bad. I don't know why God, I do not know. I don't know. But listen, here's what I know. I know he's trustworthy. I know he knows your name. He hasn't forgotten you. I know he has a purpose and I don't know what it is. And I don't, if I told you, if I knew and I could tell you, I don't know if it would make you feel better today. I don't know, but I know you can trust him. I know you can. And her question to me, and this is the part that I wanted to grab for this business of expectations. She said, so what you're telling me is that I need to forgive God and move on. I said, 
Absolutely not. You don't need to forgive God. He hasn't done anything wrong. To think that you, a mere mortal, would would forgive the Almighty? Oh, how gracious of you. Uh, You, who can see so little, I said it nicely, who can see so little and we know so little, you're going to forgive the one who made heaven and earth? I mean, on what basis do you forgive God? It's a common statement today in some settings. And I think it's utter theological nonsense. God doesn't answer to you. He is not purposeless. The problem here isn't him. It's you that you don't understand. And you don't trust him. That's the problem. You don't need to forgive God. He needs no forgiving. In fact, you need to repent of even think. Anyway, I was nice. (laughs) Disappointed in God? Maybe you need to think about what you're expecting from him. And is it in keeping with what the Bible promises? Your study sheet there. I just ask you those simple things. Do you need to repent of your unrealistic expectations of God? And I think repenting is the right word. Are you expecting him to be something and do things for you that he never promises to be and do? Is that it? Maybe you need to turn from your wrong expectations of God to the ones that are offered in the Bible. And I hope today you hear Jesus' call to you. I want to close with the final little paragraph from Kessler's book. Um, I resonate with this. He says, when, when his work is complete, we will see things as God sees them. In that day, all disappointment and grief will be forgotten. We will love what God loves and hate what he hates. Every tear will be dried and all regret abandoned. Amen, he says. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Disappointed in God? Not today. Would you stand? I'd like to pray for us. Father, thank you for these dear people, all the things that are part of our lives, the easy and the difficult alike. And I know that in this crowd, there are many who carry very difficult things today. Oh, Father, I pray that we bring those just day by day to you, that we would hear the call of Jesus and obey it. Come to me, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Father, let us, let us learn that daily discipline of coming to you in genuine trust. Oh, absolutely, trusting Christ for salvation. If we've never done that before, may this be the day. But then each day from there as well, saying, oh, God, I come today too. I come today to give me your rest for my difficulty, your joy for my sorrow. Oh, God, help me here. Encourage us this day. Encourage us this week. Point us constantly to Christ is our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.